Let's open our Bibles together to Romans chapter 9 as we continue making our way through this glorious epistle that the Lord has given to us. Romans chapter 9, going to be picking up where we left off last week. So that has us ready for verse 14. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 14, hear the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you, Lord, for this pure and good and perfect gift that you have given to us, that, that we could know our God, that by your spirits working through your word, we have been brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from blindness to sight, from death to life. Pray, Lord, that you would accomplish your good purposes through your word by your spirit this morning, even calling those who are dead in sin to life eternal. Pray for myself as I proclaim your word that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, well, ever since I was a kid, I've been enamored with the ocean. Sharks in particular, as they roam the ocean, because I watched Jaws way too young and way too many times. And so even in Lake Michigan, pretty sure, pretty sure there's a shark there. It could happen, by the way. Just throwing that out. Okay. Uh, the thing about the ocean, though, it's, it's so huge. And if you've been in the ocean and you've waded out far enough and you feel the water pick you up and you realize you can't touch the floor anymore and you realize I'm in something way bigger than me and I'm really, really small and I'm pretty powerless. This thing has got all the power in the situation and, and I need to be careful. Even if you've been out on a boat a long distance from the shore on the ocean, it can get a little scary. You realize just how small you are, just how vast it is. It is big and powerful, and you are neither of those things. Well, if you've ever swum out into the deep water of divinely inspired doctrine, then maybe you know the feeling when you realize your feet can't touch the ground anymore when you realize you have found yourself in the middle of something that is way bigger than you are, that you are very small, that your understanding is very limited, and you are in the deeps, well, you might have that feeling today. Romans 9 is like that. Romans 9 is deep, deep water. It is a deep ocean. Verse 18 alone, if we looked at nothing else but verse 18, look at what it says. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That verse alone makes us feel like, oh, I'm out deep. My feet can't touch the ground here. There's something big going on here. Well, you might be tempted when you encounter things like this, and even this morning to say, this is so deep, it's so over my head, what's the point? There's no point in this. I'm never swimming out this far again. 
This ocean is too vast, too deep, too mysterious, too scary, and a lot of people treat Romans chapter 9 exactly like that. They, they never think deeply about it at all because it's scary. A lot of, of Bible studies, if, if you're a part of Bible studies and you're studying Romans, you get to chapter 9 and it's all of a sudden like you've been going in such depth and all of a sudden it's like, and we're going to chap, cover chapters 9, 10, and 11 just today and then we'll move on. You're like, well, what happened here? Well, because it's deep and it's scary. You might even be tempted to think, why do we need to talk about all this doctrinal stuff? Why are we... Why are we spending our time doing this? We sure, certainly shouldn't be talking about the doctrine of election like we've been doing the last couple of weeks. That, that's far too controversial. Pe- people fight about that. People get upset about that. Why study something that raises so many questions and has been divisive? Well, I'm glad you asked all those questions this morning. I'm eager to answer them. Let me give you six reasons why we ought to study the doctrine of election. Number one, it's taught in the Bible. Right here, for instance. So we should study it. That, that's reason enough all by itself. The Bible teaches it. The Bible teaches it right here. There are large sections of the Bible we cannot study if we refuse to talk about the doctrine of election. We do have to skip several chapters in the book of Romans if we want to avoid it. So it's worth talking about. Secondly, though, the doctrine of election causes believers to have an elevated view of God. How did Jesus teach the disciples to pray and teach us to pray when he taught them to begin with these words? Our Father, what? You know it. Our Father who art in heaven. He's, he's elevating our perspective, right? God is our Father. The, the Almighty God is, is our Father. But he's not like Dad who's right here with me and sometimes I mouth off to him and sometimes I don't show him the respect he deserves. No, our Father is seated majestically, powerfully upon his throne in the heavens. His name is to be hallowed. His name is great. It is holy. It is to be reverenced. When our perception of God, our perspective of God is elevated, the result is reverent worship, pure worship, true worship, passionate worship. That's the third thing. The doctrine of election inspires true, right worship of God. When, when you believe in the justice and mercy and holiness and grace of God, you are enabled to worship Him rightly. You are enabled to worship Him purely. The, the, the word orthodox is actually derived from two Greek words, ortho, correct, doxa, praise. So when we sing the doxology at the end of every service together, it literally means a hymn of praise that, that we close our time with. Or, orthodox literally means right worship. That's because true worship flows out of true doctrine. You can't worship God rightly if you have the wrong understanding of who God is. When correct doctrine is taught, the result is heartfelt praise. Fourth, then, the doctrine of election destroys our pride and arrogance before God. For one thing, it just reminds us that God is far beyond our understanding. We are very, very small. The fact that we wrestle with this and have a hard time with this is because God is big and our brains are not. That's the first thing it does. But secondly, it highlights just exactly how small we are compared to God. Just exactly how great God is. Have you ever noticed in the Bible what happens when someone encounters God? 
or even the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, what, what happens is they fall on their face. They, they often ask God to leave. Please, go, go away from me. One author says this, if God were to visibly show up today, many of us think we'd run up to him and high-five him for the good things he has done. Some of us think we'd run up and hug him or ask him for an answer to that nagging theological question. Others might even demand he tell us why that tragedy in our lives was permitted to rob us of our happiness and comfort. The truth is we would do none of these things. We would instead fall trembling at his feet as his awesome, mighty, and fearful glory filled the room. We would be awestruck in the presence of a holy and all-powerful God. No other doctrine fills us with a sense of God's awesome power, his absolute sovereignty over his creation like the doctrine of election, and yet it is ignored by most churches and most Christians, even outright rejected. The result of that is God as seen as small, and man becomes the center of everything. There is a corresponding scale here. Our view of God and our view of man. The higher our view of God, the lower our view of man. The higher our view of ourselves, the lower our view of God goes. And that is how it is in many, many churches and in many Christian lives where God is treated like something like a divine custodian who is there to run and fix all of our problems for us whenever they arise, whenever we need him, because we are really the sovereigns and he is really the servant. You might think I'm exaggerating, and I wish I was, but if you read most popular Christian books, listen to most of the most popular Christian leaders and teachers, they're constantly presenting God as one who simply exists to eliminate your pains in this life. To, to, to make you happy and comfortable. The Bible is, is presented to you not as divine truth that you must submit your life to. It is presented as this book of tips for managing God so you can live your best and most fulfilled life here and now. So it's no wonder then that people abandon God when things don't work out for them, is it? When we see God that way, when life hurts, when when life becomes unexplainable and we can't see the good in the tragedies that have come our way or the pains that we are feeling, we abandon God because God didn't live up to his end of the agreement, the way that we have come to believe he's supposed to act towards us. He was supposed to fix it and he didn't fix it. But the doctrine of election reverses this corrupt thinking. It reverses this corruption in our understanding of God. It, it causes us to think high and lofty thoughts of God so that we see ourselves rightly. We see ourselves humbly. And God, not us, becomes the center of everything. God is the sovereign. We are the servants. He is in control. We are not in control. God is God. We are not. Jonathan Edwards, who was used greatly by God to bring about the Great Awakening 250 years ago, the Great Awakening, this, this time of mass conversions, spiritual revival in churches, its, its centerpiece was the sovereignty of God. And Edwards defines God's sovereignty as this. It is God's absolute, independent right of disposing of all creatures according to his own purpose. Let me read that to you one more time. God's absolute independent right of disposing of all creatures according to his own pleasure. That's 
Edwards' definition of sovereignty, and it is a good one. We say here often God does what he wants, when he wants, the way he wants, and he never has to ask anyone's permission. That's what it means. In other words, God can choose to save some and condemn others. He can do that because he's God. God can show mercy to some and judgment to others. God can call some for heaven and leave some for hell. God can choose to glorify himself in his righteous justice and judgment of their sin, or he can glorify himself in his astounding grace in salvation, but he's free to do either thing. And he is glorified in either thing. This elevates our view of God, and it, and it causes us to see ourselves rightly. Fifth, the doctrine of election energizes us to serve God with our lives. We're going to see that as we, as we move on. After Paul gets out of chapters 9, 10, and 11, as we come into chapter 12, he begins to apply these deep doctrinal truths that he has been teaching us and telling us that we ought to offer, in light of who God is and what God has done, we ought to offer our lives as living sacrifices to him. That's a direct result of understanding these truths, is that we live that way. Finally, then, the doctrine of election exalts the mercy and grace of God. As Paul says here in verse 18, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he will. Do you think it's good for God to have the right to do that? Do you think it's good for God to have the right to have mercy on whoever he wants to and to harden whoever he wants to? Let me just share this insider tip with you. You should think it's good because Paul says right here that that's what God does. So it's good. And if we have something in our heart that hears that and goes, oh, I don't like that, the problem is not with God and his word. It is not with God's character. It is not with the divinely inspired, supernatural, perfect word of God given through the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The problem is with us and our understanding. We are flawed. We need some humility. As soon as we think God owes us something, and the only reason we would think that, that somehow God couldn't show mercy to whoever he wants and harden whomever he wants, is we think God owes everybody something. And as soon as we think that, that God must do something for anyone, we minimize his glory. We rob from him the very glory of what it means to be God of what it means to be the creator. But election magnifies the character and the glory of God by acknowledging he can do whatever he pleases. He can do whatever he wants. He gets to choose who he will show mercy. He gets to choose who he will show his just justice to. He gets to choose on whom he will have grace. Paul has shown us in Romans, right, no one is deserving of any good thing. Those early chapters of Romans, everyone is under condemnation already. Everyone is a sinner by birth and by choice. Everyone suppresses the truth about God. No one seeks after God. No one desires to please God. That's what Paul says is true of 100% of people who have ever lived on this planet except the Lord Jesus Christ who was without sin. And unless God intervenes and gives to them spiritual life, they will never be any different. They will just stay under that condemnation and be happy about it. God intervenes, though, by reaching into that pit, that pit of, of filth and, 
and sin and corruption and rebellion and that pit of the unregenerate, condemned humanity that that everyone is in, this mass of rebellious, God-hating sinners, and he pulls some out of that pit whom he will save. We, We don't like that picture very much. We don't like that picture of humanity. Rebellious, filthy, vile, It doesn't fit well with our modern gospel of God loves you very much because you're very special and you're very important. He's going to give all of you a participation trophy at the end of all of this. That's why the words we sang this morning to one of our old hymns were wrong. When Isaac Watts wrote the hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, for about 300 years... The words we sang was, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? But we don't like that idea of being called a, don't call people worms. That's terrible. So we sing in our modern hymnals for sinners such as I. That sounds a little better than calling someone a worm. The problem is we don't like being called sinners anymore either. So I think in the future it's going to be something like, would he devote that sacred head to be a good example for a person who means well but just hasn't always made the best choices and just needs to be loved into becoming their best self? The problem is that's really awkward to sing. I don't know what we'll do when we get there. We'll just throw the song out, I guess. But friends, a right view of ourself causes us to have a right view of God. If we think we are basically good and deserving of good things for God, we are not grateful to him for his kindness. We don't don't see the glory of his grace, the astounding nature of his mercy. When we understand who we really are, what we really are, we see him as abounding in grace and mercy to us because we understand we are totally unworthy of it totally undeserving of it, that no one is deserving of this great salvation. God is no man's debtor. It's all grace. It's all love. It's all mercy. That's what studying the doctrine of election does to us. But, but when the topic of the doctrine of election comes up, and you maybe have thought it once already this morning, You can be sure a certain accusation is quick to follow. That accusation is, that is not fair. He gives mercy to whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That is not fair. Paul's going to address that. Look now at verse 14 with me. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That's the accusation. Paul's been so clear up to this point in Romans, he just told us that God said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Paul has been so clear, you cannot misunderstand him, not honestly. And so he knows the response to that is, that is not fair. That is unjust on God's part, to pick Jacob over Esau, to to choose Jacob and not Esau based on nothing that they have done, just because he wanted to. Is there injustice on God's part? And what's Paul's answer? By no means. A strong, emphatic answer. God forbid that you would accuse God of injustice. 
in order to demonstrate the absurdity of this claim, that it wouldn't be fair for God to do that. The absurdity of the claim that it would be unjust for God to choose his own people. Paul points again to the Old Testament. And throughout chapter 9, Paul gives illustrations from the Old Testament that show God has always acted this way. This isn't some new teaching that Paul's bringing to us. God has has always acted through sovereign election. And so earlier in chapter 9 that we saw in weeks past, we saw the examples of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God chose Abraham over every person living on earth. You. Just you, one guy. I choose you, I don't choose everybody else. Just you, Abraham. He chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. And in in none of these cases did it have anything to do with what they had done or what they were going to do. Paul says it was in order that God's purpose of election might continue. That's, That's Paul's reasoning for why this is. It's always been about God's sovereign choice. And now in in verse 15, Paul's going to quote Exodus 33, bring to us the example of Moses and the Israelites. And and in Exodus 33, verse 19, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This word from the Lord came on the heels of 3,000 Israelites being killed by the sword for their idolatry. That's when God spoke these words, right after that happened to Moses. Moses had received the Ten Commandments from the Lord. You remember this story? And while he's up on the mountain, the people are going wild, taking all their gold, all their jewelry. If Aaron is to be believed, throwing it into the fire and it just comes out a calf. They form this golden calf and they begin to dance before it and worship it and revel before it in all kinds of debauchery. And God speaks to Moses and says, every one of them deserves death. But that's not what happened. They didn't all die. 3,000 of them died in judgment. But why 3,000 and not everyone if everyone deserved it? And why that particular 3,000 that died and not others? We aren't told the answer to that, but Paul uses this as an example to illustrate God's sovereignty in judging some and showing mercy to others. And so Paul's first response to this accusation, that's not fair, is that salvation has nothing to do with fair. It's about mercy. It's not about fair. It's about mercy. Salvation is not about getting what you deserve. Salvation is about mercy. If you want what you deserve, that's simple. You deserve destruction. You deserve hell. That's what you deserve. But God has chosen to show mercy to some, and he decides who that is. Fair doesn't ever come into it. It's mercy. It's undeserved. Paul wants to make sure we don't wiggle out of this. And so in verse 16, he makes it very, very clear what he's saying. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Everyone deserves judgment. Everyone is already under condemnation. God reaches into that pit and pulls some up. Who are the some? Paul wants to make sure we understand it doesn't have anything to do with them. 
It depends on God. Friends, if we discount God's sovereign mercy, we forfeit our assurance of salvation. If we think salvation is based on something that we have done, some decision that we have made, some, some act of our will, we will never have solid assurance of our standing with God, not one that will last. So, so many people want to say salvation has to be primarily a matter of my free will. And that might be you right now. You might be somewhat scandalized as we've been going through Romans 9. But what does Paul say here? It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. Friend, you're not arguing with me in your mind right now. You're not arguing with John Calvin in your mind right now. You are arguing with the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God in your mind right now. Because he says it depends on God and his mercy. John says the same thing in the prologue to his gospel. Turn with me to John chapter 1. Keep your finger in Romans. We'll obviously be back. John chapter 1. Look with me at verse 10. Speaking of Jesus here. He, that's Jesus, was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Okay, so we say, there it is. Who are the ones that become the children of God? All these people reject him, but it's the ones who receive him, who believe on his name. That sounds an awful lot like it's our will that's the one that made all this happen, except the sentence doesn't end right there. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So who are the ones who believed in his name? How did they believe in his name? John says they were born not of blood. In other words, they didn't get there by natural descent. They were just born into it. Not of the will of the flesh. They did not get there by their free will. And just to be clear nor by the will of man. It wasn't because of any man whatsoever. It had nothing to do with that. They were born of God. It was an act of God upon them. Now flip back to Romans chapter 9. Paul's not giving us new theology here. He's not giving us new doctrine. It's through the Old Testament. It's through the whole New Testament. He says it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Salvation is all of God. It is all of grace. God's salvation is rooted in, it is wholly dependent on God's sovereign mercy and grace. And so if you are thinking about fairness in relation to salvation, if you are thinking of questions of fairness in regard to some being saved and others passed over, you are thinking about the wrong category. Fairness is not the right category to be considering when it comes to God's salvation. Salvation is not a matter of fairness. It is a matter of mercy. The only people who get what they don't deserve are the ones on whom God has mercy. Everyone else gets exactly what they deserve. 
If I had five $100 bills here in the pulpit, I don't. If I had them and I picked five of you, just according to my own good pleasure, to each get one $100 bill, the rest of you who didn't get one, guess what you got from me? Exactly what you deserved, which was nothing. I don't owe any of you anything. The five got a gift of grace. The rest have no room to argue. If you go home from here not having received a $100 bill and call me unjust, then your understanding of justice is so egocentric and flawed that you don't even make logical sense anymore. Oh, you can question why God would be merciful to anyone, but you can never accuse him of being unjust. You must never accuse him of being unjust. Does it offend you for God to show mercy to some and pass others by? If it does, friend, you have the wrong understanding of what mercy is. You don't understand what mercy is if it would offend you for God to be free not to show it to everyone. And respectfully, this teaching is not unclear in the Bible. It might be new to you. It might feel scandalous to you, but it is not unclear in Scripture. It might be hard to swallow, but it's crystal clear. You shouldn't be scandalized by your flawed idea of fairness. You should instead be amazed at the mercy of God. That's what a right understanding of who we are and what God has accomplished in salvation will do to us. Well, Paul continues to illustrate this truth from Israel's past. He gives us one of the greatest examples of God's sovereign power He uses the demonstration of God's power in Egypt that liberated the Jews from their captivity to Pharaoh. This is the example that every Jew knows so very well. And Paul points to it, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, let's just stop right there. You catch that? The scripture says to Pharaoh. The scriptures weren't written at that time. But Paul considers the word of God spoken through Moses to be the scripture. The scripture says to Pharaoh. Now, look back at verse 15 here in Romans chapter 9 where he says, he says, referring to God. These are connected. That that statement, he says in verse 15 and here in 17, the scripture says. He's using these terms synonymously. In other words, he considers them equally authoritative. When the scripture speaks, God himself is speaking. And so whatever we come across in our Bibles, we we are not Christian at liberty to just go, I like this part, I don't like this part. When the Scripture speaks, God speaks with authority. And what did God say to Pharaoh? Continuing on in verse 17. For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. How was God going to show his power in Pharaoh? By raising him up to be the most powerful man in all the earth and then just giving him lots of blessings and making sure Pharaoh got saved, making sure Pharaoh had a a legit, you know, experience, a legit moment, an altar call where he could respond. No, that's not what God did. I raised you up, Pharaoh, to show my power in you by destroying you, by judging you. 
John MacArthur says, being an absolute monarch, Pharaoh assumed that everything he said and did was by his own free choice to serve his own human purposes. But the Lord makes clear through Moses that Pharaoh was divinely raised up to serve a divine purpose, a purpose of which the king was not even aware. Would God do that? Would God raise someone up? Is God that sovereign that he would raise up an unbeliever for the exact purpose of destroying him? to accomplish his own purposes of his will. Would God really do that? Would God really raise Pharaoh up just so he could destroy him publicly? And the answer is that's exactly what Scripture says God did to Pharaoh. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Literally, that, that, that would translate to as they were appointed to do. They were appointed to this destiny. They stumbled over Christ and rejected him because they were appointed to that destiny. Would God really do that? That's what the scripture says. That's what it says. So, so does that mean that God forces unbelievers to reject him just for his own good purposes? And the answer is no, of course not. God doesn't need to do that. What, what have we seen in Romans already before we got to this point? Paul's already answered that for us. Mankind has already rejected him. They already disbelieve all by themselves. They don't need God's help to do that. But they've already done that. John Chapter 3, verse 18, Jesus says the unbeliever, Christ didn't come into the world to judge the world, to condemn the world, because the world is already condemned. God doesn't have to act negatively on the unbeliever in order for them to reject him and rebel. He just has to let them do what they want to do. They already do that. God's never forcing anyone to reject him. God's never forcing forcing someone who, who, who would come to him otherwise to not come. He just lets some do what they want to do. He doesn't have to act negatively upon the unbeliever. He does, however, have to act positively for the elect to believe. He has to act on you, friend. You're in that pit. You don't want out. No one seeks after God. God has to do something. You're dead in your sin. It has to do something to you. No one believes unless God intervenes on their behalf. And so the question has been raised about God's judgment, and Paul insists that is a, uh, about God's justice, about God's fairness. And Paul insists that is a deeply flawed question. He doesn't address justice. He instead points to mercy. And now he points to something else, to God's purposes. He says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up. God has a reason for everything that he does, and his reason is not unjust. Just because you can't see it, just because you can't understand it, doesn't mean you have the right to question it. God only acts justly. He only does what is right. Just because we can't fully wrap our minds around this because we are out in the deep water that is too big for us doesn't mean we get to question God and call him unfair. 
doesn't mean we get to reject portions of his word because it doesn't say things the way we would like them to be saved or we get to twist it a little bit so that it sounds more like what we want. And to prove this to us, God actually reveals his purposes in what he did to Pharaoh. He says, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you. God's God's passing over of Pharaoh was purposeful. He was demonstrating something. He, He says, I'm demonstrating my power. And then he says this, that my name might be proclaimed in the earth. So God raised Pharaoh up to be the most powerful man in the world, and he passed him by. In other words, he didn't act upon Pharaoh such that his dead heart became alive and he saw God for who he was and and, and did what anyone who sees how glorious God is would do, which is to worship him. God passed him by. He didn't do that. And he did that because it was part of his purpose, demonstrating his power in order to declare himself to the nations. And so we might see this thing that we think is unfair. Here's Pharaoh, a person. We know Pharaoh as this evil villain. Pharaoh is a human, a human that God passed over and then crushed. And the question of fairness comes up, but what we see is in God's glorious purposes, it was for God's glory and even had an evangelistic purpose that the whole world would see the glory of God. Oh, friends, just because we don't know what God's doing, just because we don't fully understand, it doesn't give us the right to question him. It doesn't give us the right to question his righteousness and his justice. Verse 18 then. Just in case, just in case we want to try and do some sort of gymnastics with this text, as many do. As many do. Paul gives us verse 18, just to make sure we're not misunderstanding what he's saying. He's been clear But he leaves us no room. He says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul just puts it out there. No apologies. It's crystal clear. It all comes down to the choice of God. And now you can can come up with a hundred objections. You can come up with a hundred arguments, but Paul is not being obtuse here. He's not mincing words here. He is being perfectly clear perfectly straightforward, it rests on God's sovereign purposes. How does that sit with you? Paul's, he's not being difficult to understand. If you're rejecting it in your heart right now, it's not because this is hard to understand, it's because it's hard to swallow. Of course, Pharaoh did what he wanted to do every step of the way, didn't he? In fact, we read these parallel statements in the account from Exodus that says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, which is what Paul's focusing on right now. But we also see this other parallel statement, Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did what he wanted to do. God did not have to act negatively upon Pharaoh to get Pharaoh to do what Pharaoh did. He did what he wanted to do every step of the way. He made real choices. He hardened his heart. His choices mattered eternally. He was a sinner who rebelled against God, who mocked his name, but that is not what Paul's focusing on in this passage. We see all of that in Exodus, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul wants us to focus on the sovereign choice of God right here, because 
what was going on in Pharaoh's heart wasn't the only thing that was going on. We, we see that even in, in the Exodus account. Paul's not focusing on Pharaoh's end of the deal. He's focusing on the sovereign choice of God. And, and the point of this passage, the point of Paul's teaching is God's electing purposes exalt his mercy. He's glorified in this. It is, in fact, glorious. Why is Paul not apologetic about any of this? Why is he not humming and, and, and you know, stammering and making excuses for it? Why, why am I, in a former Mennonite church, not afraid to preach this? In fact, delighted to do so. I'll tell you why. Because it's glorious. It's beautiful. It's perfect. God is glorified in it. The believer is encouraged through it, strengthened through it. Our worship is more pure, more true. Our devotion more sincere. That's why. God's electing purposes exalt his mercy. When we see God's sovereign choice in salvation, we realize salvation is all of grace and we get no glory whatsoever for ourselves. We have no room for arrogance. We have no room for boasting. It is not based on our worthiness or our actions. It is based on God's grace alone. And because it is, we can be assured that that grace will persevere Our assurance, our acceptance with him is based not on us, but wholly on him, and he will never falter, friend. Now, you might ask, and it's a good question, and it's actually the right question, if it's based on God's mercy and not the will of man, how do you know if you've received the mercy of God? If Paul says it's all about God's purpose in election, how do you know if you're elect? I'm glad you asked that question too. Because the answer is a simple one. If you want to receive the mercy of God, you ask for it. You call out to him. Those whom he has chosen to receive his mercy are the exact same people who come to him for mercy. So come. Paul will say elsewhere, make your calling an election sure. We're not supposed to hear this teaching and then stand back and go, whatever's going to be is going to be and have this fatalistic view. God's going to pick. He'll either pick me or not pick me. I guess I'll just watch TV all day. That's not what Paul says. He says, make your calling. This same Paul, it depends not on the will of man. The same Paul says, Christian, make your calling and election sure. In other words, you live your life in such a way that you are running to the cross of Christ daily, that you are bowing your knee before this sovereign God, living in obedience to him, putting sin to death in your life so that you are testing yourself to see if your faith is genuine. That's the same Paul. So you want to know if that's you? You don't sit around navel-gazing all day thinking about whether you're elect or not elect. You come. You call on him for mercy. And all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Come to him for mercy. Come to him for grace. Run to the cross of Christ. Put your hope in him alone for salvation. Friend, he will have you. You will be 
proving that He has chosen you. Perhaps the biggest hurdle to all of this is we think about our loved ones who are not walking with the Lord. We feel that perhaps God has been unfair to them. I would remind you, God is much more trustworthy than they are. You don't want that resting on them. They're a bonehead. You know it. But what ought you to do in that case? You command them to come to Christ. You share with them the glorious gospel. The glorious good news. This gospel that Paul says in verse 16 of chapter 1 of Romans is the power of God for salvation. And you tell them, come and he will have you. And if they will come, he will have them. Friends, this is glorious good news. It's not the kind of good news that we need to fight with each other about. It's not the kind of good news that we need to get all uptight about. We need to just accept God's word for what it says, see the glory that is there, humble ourselves before him. It is not a Christian ethic to reject the clear teaching of Scripture because it doesn't sit right with our human understanding of fairness. It's for our good. It's for our joy. But friends... Our work is to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ and to call all who will come to come. Trusting in the promise that all who come and call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, it is glorious and deep and beyond our understanding. Lord, as we consider the matters that we have been considering through our brother, the Apostle Paul, by your spirit, we are at times perplexed. We are at times confused. Lord, cause us to stand amazed at your glory. Cause us, Lord, to to submit all of those feelings to you as an act of worship and surrender. And Lord, let us see you for who you are. Let us have a fuller, truer understanding of your great salvation that we would worship you, that we would offer our bodies a living sacrifice to you, our God, our Savior, that our lives would would give testimony that we have been saved by you, converted by you, transformed by you, given new hearts and new minds that long to serve you. And Lord, where we have been complacent, where where there has been sin in our lives that we have held onto with some sort of false assurance that we could continue to live in that sin, would you by your Spirit convict us to the core Show us the desperation of our lostness in that condition that we would run to you. Help us to be faithful witnesses, Lord. Don't let us become puffed up with with knowledge and, and arrogantly seek after just being smart and theologically informed. We want to pursue the knowledge of you because we want more of you. We want to worship you from the heart. We want to live our lives for you. And I pray, God, that you would do that work. Make us that people, that church, for your glory, for your namesake, for your people's joy. In Jesus' name, amen.